welcome back or welcome to another episode of the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Marcus. John, what is going on? Oh, man, I feel like we're running late, you know? I just feel like it's just the time slipping. It's time to get the people we want. We need to catch up. Let's go. I'm ready. I'm hyped. It is time. Let's give them what they want. All right. And we've got another exciting episode. All of our episodes are exciting, but I particularly love the ones where we just get to riff on coaching, which is what it is today. Before we jump into that, though, a quick reminder that we don't do sponsors here right now lately because we are sponsoring ourselves which means we've got all sorts of goodies from the scholar program available and you get i i know we hype this a lot but the reason we hype this a lot is because we put so much information out there our single goal is to have the number one best most comprehensive most in-depth resource for distance coaches in the entire world and land online and that's what we got right now we that's are... it world domination of information content science practice history of distance running it's the ultimate clearinghouse for the distance running geek and you know what it just keeps getting bigger it does it just every day it's like we just add a little bit to the bucket a little bit more you know and it's just a great way to you know, connect with everyone who is equally excited and interested and curious about distance running, whether you're an athlete, coach, and or just fan of the sport. And we just announced today our theme for this month for the Scholar Program, which is strength training for distance runners. So if you're interested in strength training, guess what? You're going to get a individual pod from... John, individual pod from me, and then we're going to come together with a live Zoom session where we just dive deep on strength training for runners. So if that sounds up your alley, get in today so that you can get access to that and then come chat with us on Zoom. Yeah, Train Talk Live, it's back. Yeah, strength training is a you know very important aspect of training. It's still answerly, but it does have a lot of benefit and impact. I think it's one of the things... Still today, distance runners and coaches are a little, um, you know, confused about in regards of when, where, and how to do it. And that's what Steve and I will try to unpack. Awesome. So let's jump right into this week's episode, which is the, the Coach's Guide to Sports Psychology. Now, this one's I think it's going to be interesting and fun, and I'm not sure exactly where we're going to go with it, but I think as coaches... We wear so many hats, and one of those hats is to almost be a, a kind of mini sports psychologist or a mini mental strength or performance coach because we've got to deal with anxiety, performance anxiety. We've got to deal with the ups and downs of performance and racing success. We've got to deal with the stressors that come along with it, and all sorts of the psychological problems or psychological issues, I should say, that uh, come when you're trying to achieve uh, peak performance. Yeah, I wish it was just as simple as you do the workout, you log your, you know, miles, your splits, you know, into a training log. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like putting a, a bun in the oven it just comes out ready on time and it's good to go. Unfortunately, we're dealing with humans and humans are, as I like to call, sticky or they're a little bit, um, you know, mushy in terms of how we're going to act or respond from moment to moment, day to day, week to week, year to year. There's a lot of things at play and interplay that make it so we are inconsistent, even though what we try to do through civilization, through organizing of training, through practicing, through periodization, is create a shred of organization to the chaos. Yes, yes. You know, it's it's training is not mathematical, even though our education and our coaches' training often assumes it is. Do these workouts, have the inputs, and the outputs are there. If anybody guarantees you that their training program will work, 
like that run far, far away. <laughs> as far as you can. Like you are dealing with a charlatan for sure. <laughs> so, but the the psychological side, the mental side is that is that that kind of in between space, which kind of determines how how close to our potential based on the workouts, based on our physical capacities they get. And you know, John, one of the most frustrating things or one of the most challenging things that we face as a coach is when you see the physical, right? You see the workouts and you're just like, oh my gosh, this person's ready to run. Like they're in PR shape. They're ready to throw something down. But then it doesn't come together or coalesce together during the races. And that's when I think as a coach, you really have to dive into this mushy slash soft side to try and figure out, okay, what are the things that are preventing, you know, this coalescing, this coming together, this expression of their physical capacities? Yeah, the workout runner who can't put together on a race day is, I think, a classic example that has uh, confused and frustrated coaches forever, right? And for me, what I've realized is it comes down to perception. Um, you know, with athletes, we go into workouts, there's a high degree of stability, right? We write the workout, here's the rep length, uh, rest interval length, the paces, you know, all these things. So you have outlined everything and made everything known, right? And on race day, there's some knowns, but there's a lot of unknowns. And I, that's where it it becomes difficult to translate going from a highly structured, sta stabilized environment where every day is prescripted. You are no, you know what you're doing and why you're doing it. There's a supposed, um, you know, physical benefit from the pattern and rhythm of training. And then you get in the racing crucible. And the thing, you know, is maybe the date, the place, the distance, uh, the terrain you're going over, but you don't know, you know, how the race is going to play out, what the other competitors are going to do, how you're going to feel, you know, potentially a third, two thirds, uh, three quarters of the way in. And all that stuff can weigh on someone if they're not um, psychologically prepared for that moment or for that racing crucible. And that's where, you know, Steve uh, made a comment to me last week you know, coming back after like, say a year off essentially from racing and saying, man, racing is such a skill. And like all these athletes uh, that, you know, we've been working with for the last year, getting fit in the practice arena now are experiencing new difficulties or unfamiliar difficulties in the racing environment. And it just demonstrates how, um, you know, dull that skill became in the last year. Yeah, you know, I, you bring up a good point there. And I think if we broke it down, what we're dealing with in this practice versus racing, which you, you mentioned there, is this ability to deal with uncertainty. And why that matters or how that impacts things is, is, is pretty profound in the sense that if we look at, since we're talking sports psychology, right, your body tends to, and mind, tend to see things as either challenges or threats, right? And a lot of times in practice, we see it as a challenge, right? Because it's like, okay, what's my workout today? Oh, I've got 400s. All right, I'm trying to run them in 62. Let's go. And you're and the reason we see it as a challenge it's, is, is it's a secure environment, right? If you hit a 63 or you hit a 64 and blow up, no one's going to, like, you're going to be a little upset, but no one's going to see Right, your coach isn't gonna yell at you for the most part if they're a good coach. Um, it's it's okay, right? You're challenged to see where your capacity is in this workout, and if you fail, it's no big deal. But once we enter the crucible of racing, a lot of times what happens is we start to see it as this threat because it's no longer oh, I'm gonna see what I might I can do. I'm gonna like take risks and see what happens. There's all that uncertainty you outlined, John, which then triggers like, oh, well, I don't know if I can actually accomplish this, right? I don't know if I'm capable of this. These doubts start to enter your mind. The anxiety comes around when you see things as a threat. You have a different kind of stress response, all this stuff. 
it's so it's in a lot of ways it's strange but a lot of ways it's it's normal to a degree um so part of part of making that jump from practice to racing is to figure out how to keep that challenge mindset or that challenge and not let that uncertainty and worry take over so you start seeing it as this threatening experience where you know if you fail if you you know blow up in a race it's like a dramatic failure yeah you're 100% right steve i think it also that anxiety or that threat response right that's when our bodies shift from a sympathetic or parasympathetic to a sympathetic state right so parasympathetic is that you know relaxed regenerative calm store resting environment and that sympathetic state is that high um you know adrenaline or cortisol you know a lot of uh, hormones going through the system to meet a demand uh you know or a highly demanding task and shifting back between sympathetic and parasympathetic is a skill and that's where a lot of meditation practices come in breathing visualization those types of things uh naps rest and regeneration soothing music what have you all those are tools and elements designed to reorient and shift someone back into that parasympathetic state. However, you do have people who are just naturally highly strong and typically distance running lends itself to those types. Why? Because distance running gives you some controllables, especially quantitative controllables, like how many miles you're running, how fast, how much time, what's, you know, the pace. Like there's a lot of structure and we, Steve and I talk about and spent our lives creating structure around training um, and to hopefully have it be successful. But all that structure is useless if the expectation is not aligned with um, reality. And that's, I think, where a lot of things happen um, to create a stressful racing environment for an athlete is when their expectations are perceived as threats. So let's say I have an athlete, you know, one scenario is an athlete who's on scholarship at the NCAA level and the coach is very concerned about got to score these number of points at conference. Okay, you're on this much scholarship, so you got to score double digit points and it has to be in these events you qualify for. You put a lot of pressure on the athlete, but you have to know the athlete. Will that athlete rise to the challenge and say, oh, okay, this is something I'm doing, which is manageable? Or did you basically tell the athlete they have to win every single event they're entered in, score 20 points to help the team, and the whole team is relying on them to score those 20 points in the 5K and 10K at conference, but they don't feel like they're adequately prepared to deliver on that because the only other, there's only one path to success, winning the conference uh, title. Second is not good enough. Third is not good enough. When you create those scenarios whether you're trying to motivate, but you're creating a situation where the pressure has only one outcome that results in success, that is one way that um, we can sabotage an athlete who might be super fit and ready to go because they're going to perceive that environment as highly threatening. And there only is one outcome that is going to result in deemed a quote unquote success. Yeah, man, you brought up a lot of good points in there. A lot, a lot to pick apart. Um, it's I super common like too. The, the one out- yeah. yeah, the the one outcome there is interesting because if you've watched track long enough, right? Like we have, like many of our listeners have. It's interesting. You you can see races where an athlete goes from looking pretty good, running along, running along, till all of a sudden they just blow up, right? And a lot of times that happens once their number one, their sole goal goal goes away, right? So if they are their goal, their their only goal is to win, or their only goal is to PR. Once they fall off of that, it's just like instant blow up thing. And what happens there is is pretty simple. It's your 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 brain and body sit there and be like, well, this is our goal. This is what we said as our outcome as like being the most important. We focused on it and we've deliberated on it and all that stuff. And once it starts going away, your mind almost goes, 
well, what's the point? We're not going to reach our goal. So we might as well shut down, right? We might as well, because your, your, your brain and body are a protective mechanism. Why is it going to spend a ton of energy, dive into acidosis, et cetera, if it's not, not to catch the hunt, right? <laughs> so like your, your brain is smart. It's saying, hey, we're not going to get that, you know, that deer. So why kill ourselves to try and do it? Yeah, Same the cost thing. benefit exchange is way off. It's like, why why continue this pain? Like the body doesn't want to be in a painful state, you know, unless there is a, a reward. Exactly. So, so one of the things, okay, we sit there, okay, that's how the body and mind work. Well, how do you combat? How do you deal with that? Well, one of the, the simplest thing is just like John said right there, is you can have you can have multiple outcomes, multiple goals, multiple layers so that it's not falling down. It's not going from I'm in it to like up oh, body shut down. And that's why a lot of times you'll hear people talk about outcome goals and process goals and why you should have uh, you know, one or the other or both or what have you. And what you're essentially trying to do there is just manipulate the expectations a little bit so that you're mind doesn't go from a hundred to zero or in it to who cares why not you know why keep pushing so it's these sometimes it's these very subtle things when we're looking at the mental side of how are we setting up expectations how are we setting up our goals how are we framing this for the athlete and are we putting this undue pressure on them which for some that pressure, let's say we're a Michael Jordan, that pressure might raise their game, right? For others, it might shift this balance of risk versus reward and say, you know what? That isn't worth it. So it a lot of it is like knowing the individual you're working with. Yeah. And also too, this goes back to like, say the one of the core jobs of a coach is the creation of the environment or the culture and context that that uh, athlete is in, whether it's an individual one-on-one coach-athlete relationship within a team context. If we go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that layer of safety, that foundational layer is key. And this is where, again, we go back to that original example I gave. When you put this high burden of expectation on an athlete and they're not absolutely certain that they can meet that. And maybe, you know, maybe they do respond really well to that degree of pressure and rise to the challenge because they don't perceive it as a threat, or maybe they perceive it as a threat and they'll wilt in the face of those um, expectations. If the safety component's not there, then their ability to take risks is going to be radically diminished because they're you're starting them off going into, say, our example of the conference scenario with only other option besides winning is failing, right? And so you create this binary uh, game, so to speak. And when you put yourself in a binary game, unless that person is well advanced or well prepared to meet and exceed that expectation, the, the higher likelihood is they're going to fail. And then now they're not, they don't feel safe. And so then they start to beat them up on themselves. They start to have a lot of negative self-talk. They start to look for every opportunity to get out of that game or scenario. Oh, I hope I roll my ankle on the warm up so I don't have so I have an out, right? And I've seen that time and time again, where when we focus so much on quantitative goals, your place, your time. Um, the numerical metrics, even though it gives clarity about expectation and there's value to that, having a, some type of process or qualitative um, ambition is really healthy. And I, I am famous. I don't like goals because uh, quantitative goals. I like the rehearsal or refinement or process-oriented goal, which again you can use to help give context to the quantitative outcome. So it's a little shift in perspective, right? Rather than saying, you have to win this race, you have to run this time, which track is very much like that and distance running is very much like that because, yeah, you got to run a certain mark to qualify for, say, a the next round or the, the next meet or what have you. But what you're doing inadvertently is you're putting limits by saying you have to run this time versus if you make it more relational 
if you make it more quantitative, the expectation, the goal. What I've found oftentimes is the time and the quantitative aspect takes care of itself and the athlete far exceeds that, you know, they quote unquote run out of their you know, minds or they have a breakthrough, right? Because you give them a clear process to execute on and you say, let's see what happens. A good example of this is, let's say several years ago um, when I was working with Eleanor Fulton, she had difficulty winning races at the you know uh, professional level or post-collegiate level. And so the question was why? Why was she not putting herself in a position uh, to be competitive and win races when her workouts, her pattern of training, you know, everything said she indicated within the level she was competing, she was very qualified to be in that dialogue for a win. And we uh, discovered like it was because of, you know, a perception of expectation and she'd rather be take it easier and uh, take the easy route and get a little PR and call that a success than taking a big risk and trying to go for um, the win. So what we did was we decided, you know, to put her in situations and scenarios in workouts and then translate that to the race plan of saying, here's what you're going to do. You're going to lead the whole thing by yourself. And so she started doing a lot more workouts solo, right? And tough workouts solo with no pacers, no teammates, no helping. Just you are doing this all by yourself. And it started to give her, when she saw the quantitative um, measure of her workouts and how fast she was running, how dense she was running, that started to compound and give her more and more and more um, confidence in her ability to do it on her own without needing it all set up to be perfect. Right. And then she gets to say the university of Washington runs the indoor preview in the three K and, you know, sure enough, like the pacing was off, right. The, the college gal who was, you know, trying to pace the three K at nine flat couldn't go, you know, the whole distance when only half like 800, 1200 meters. And it was left to L to like do it all on her own. And she did. And she led basically wire to wire um, and held off a, uh, a challenge from a coming back from pregnancy, Shannon Roberry, who's still pretty damn fit and fast to win that race outright and set a new PR. It wasn't about necessarily the PR of running like nine flat or 901 or whatever she did. It was the fact that she felt confident and prepared. And the expectation was to risk and give it everything she had to maintain that lead position. And she found extra energy and extra motivation in those final 200, 300 meters when she was exhausted and tired and dealing with a lot of acidosis tolerance, right? And everything in her body is saying, slow down, slow down, slow down. She was able to override that because we created a um, scenario and expectation and game plan that we practice for months on hand in, in workouts to align her to have that breakout um, performance, which then popped her up and elevated her to a new threshold at that time of um, competency amongst her peers in the you know national uh, American national indoor scene, right? So, and then all of a sudden, like she was competing in the front of those races time and time again, and that's what we wanted to do because it wasn't a the limiting factor wasn't fitness or ability to produce. Um, you know, a pace, the limiting factor we had decided to, uh, you know, pr progress was her perception, the expectations that realignment proved to be a high, a, a lot of benefit for her. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good example there, John. And I think that it gets back to, again, racing as a skill and the psychological side of it is a skill. And I think that, we do ourselves a disservice and just um, focusing on the physical components, the workouts, and then hoping, praying that the, you know, it all comes together on, on, on race day. It's, it's, and I'm not saying that to make light of things, but it's very difficult to, you know, get that sweet spot and figure out the expectations so that, you know, athlete like Elnor can, can execute uh, on, race day. But, you know, you said something in there, which I think is, is really important on this. And that is like getting the competency. So on one half of this equation is like setting your expectations versus the reality of what you're going to face. So if there's mismatch in there, right, 
if if um, we expect something that is and it's much more difficult than we expected, the reality of it, then we're going to shut down. Right. But those expectations isn't just saying, oh, I'm going to set this goal, this goal, this goal. It's also having the competency or the self-efficacy to know that you're capable of this. And this is kind of your your kind of bottom line. And I think a lot of people assume that, oh, that's going to take care of itself because of the workouts, right? So many coaches say, okay, well, look back at the workouts you've done. Look at, back at the workouts you've done. Like that should show you you're fit and ready. And yes, to a degree, but competency, self-efficacy comes more uh it is more than just reflecting and looking at your training log and being like, oh, yes, this is this is what I'm capable of based on on the workout. So much of it is um, doing what we've talked about before on this podcast, which is knowing almost kind of your your floor, right? Your bare minimum of, you know what? Every time I, I race and show up, show up, I I'm going to be capable of doing this, giving this effort, running about this time, right? This is my bare minimum. You know, this is what I can roll out a day out of bed every day and show up and and, and do. And I think that is one form of it, right? Setting, knowing that no matter what, you can accomplish that. That gives you this baseline of competency. And then the other part is like, well, how high can you reach? Like how secure am I to take these risks? And that's the other part of it, right? So it's this consistency versus willingness to take risks and break through and having a belief that you can, like if you're feeling good, if it's clicking, that you are capable of something. So I think, you know, what I'm getting at is we have to break this down into these multiple levels or layers because, you know, we also have athletes who take chance after chance after chance and it's either a great day or it's a blow up day. And I think that can be as damaging as, you know, the the uh, the flip side of it. I agree, Steve. You're spot on. I think framing is what matters most in this situation when you talk to sports psychology and you know, we talk about expectation. How does the athlete frame it? Uh frame a competitive situation. And that self efficacy has to be wedded to kind of intrinsic motivators as well. Um, you know, taking that control in that direction about what challenges the athlete feels prepared for. You as the coach can may, may say, oh, this athlete's ready to compete at this level because workouts have been like this and they've been doing it for this long. They're more than prepared. But if their intrinsic perception is not there and they don't think they're worthy or they have you know the ability to do that and they're afraid to take that risk no amount of encouragement necessarily you as the coach is going to uh, give them that permission that they need from themselves to go ahead and, and take that risk and that's where you do have to sit down and talk with that individual and it is on an individual basis about what needs to be done in their preparation or what types of preparation, whether it's in the practice or in scaffolding or early races, to get them to a, a space where they feel comfortable and safe to take those risks and see what happens. And that's the most important part, I think, of racing is having an expectation, knowing what you want to happen, but also too having that curiosity and open-mindedness to see what happens see what happens when i do this see what happens when this you know when i choose to surge here let's see what happens um but in a lot of ways with a clientele or um, athlete population steve and i work with who have performance expectations so heavily weighed on them scholarship-based athletes athletes on contract where they have um you know time incentives and bonuses uh, and renewals that are heavily dependent on them hitting certain marks or standards consistently year in and year out, you know, that takes a whole lot to uh, manage and also um, pivot people away from obsessing about, because it's easy to look at your performance expectations based on your contract or your scholarship, or even at the high school level, parents 
and athletes who may say, well, I talked to this coach at this school and they said I need to run this time to even be considered to be on the team, right? And you're, you're getting a lot more of that where we're just overly uh, ex, uh, um, dependent or obsessed about these quantitative measures, but we're forgetting too, it might be a limiting factor. And this is where the best coaches kind of keep that cognitive dissonance um, you know, in their mind where it's like, yeah, the quantitative outcome matters, but to the qualitative, you know, emotional side of it matters more. And how do I shape each individual's orientation and uh, frame of reference to get them to take that risk to see what happens? And it's different for different people. And this is why it's so hard as a coach, especially if you have a big program to deliver on that all the way, um, you know, down your roster. But these are reasons why, say, the Mike Smiths of the world take the NAU men's team out for laser tag before a big meet. You know, those situations, what that's done is not to say he's trying to create orientation of like, you guys worked really hard. Here's to have a little bit of fun to relieve a little bit of pressure. Forget about the 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 championship meet that's coming up here. You know, don't I don't want you sitting in your hotel room just, you know, obsessing about it. We're going to do some light activity that's fun that will put you in the, the moment and also distract you to a certain degree from obsessing about this future impending challenge that's going to happen the next day or two days, right? And so it's in those types of activities are meant to shift away the burden that might come from a highly motivated and obsessed um, distance runner type who wants a lot of control to the being uh, a process of being in the moment and just enjoying this for right now, because you only get, you know, so many times to lace up, you only get so many racing experiences. And a lot of times when we go in with that um, overzealous or overly quantifiable goal or expectation, we lose the opportunity to do something you know, out of this world or run out of our minds or break through because we're so afraid not to meet that um, perceived, as Steve called, baseline or floor expectation that we miss the moment to like then say hop on the, the pace train or respond to the surge or, you know, ra- rally, a, you know, an amazing kick um, just because we're in the moment having fun, seeing what we can do. You know, this is where coaches come into play uh, a lot because we set those expectations. We set those permissions that that permission to take risks that you just talked all about is all about the security, right? Does it come if you are afraid of failing, if you have this fear of failure, if you have, you know, that if you mess up that, um, that you might be punished or yelled at or whatever have you, do you think you're going to have a high permission to take risks? No, you're going, you're, you're, you're gonna, you're going to, you know, if you are afraid, then you're going to go into protective mode, not risk-taking exploration mode. Right. And what we want as, as coaches and athletes is for, athletes to be able to explore their potentials and explore where they're going. So as a coach, this is this is why I would say the the hard ass like old school model of coaching fails a lot of times because it works for specific individuals who are able to maybe handle this for a lot but for a lot of people it puts them in this this uh this state of mind where they are afraid to take these risks and to take on challenges and they play it safe, right? It's the old, well, are you playing to win or are you playing not to lose? Are you going to play prevent defense or are you going to go for, you know, to see what you're capable of? And I think that I, I think that is why as coaches, we have this big responsibility to set the standards, set the culture, set the expectations. And a lot of that comes in how you respond when your athletes don't perform well, right? Do you drag, what is the first thing that you do when they get off the track is to like light into them and yell at them? 
or are you like giving them the cold shoulder and ignoring them for the rest of the 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 meet and the drive home when they don't perform well like those things ingrain the message more so than you standing up at practice and saying things it's your behavior and your acceptance of uh, or rejection of different things that set the standard and i think as coaches we have to go you know we have to do our work to make sure that our athletes feel like they have the ability to take, you know, smart, calculated risks and to be okay with it. Any you're spot on, Steve. Any leader, anytime you're in a leadership position, you have to be hyper aware about how your behavior, actions, and language is potentially being interpreted. And it's tough. Um, because a lot of times we get into various leadership roles, whether you're a coach, a manager, uh, you know, uh, a father, uh, a wife, you, uh, you know, a husband, a mother, what have you, right? And you're not you're not ready because no one really taught you how to lead, and you you just you tend to lead as you were led a lot of times, and a lot and most of it is unsuccessful. Um, and just perpetuating a lack of success in terms of growth and maturation on the leader's part and then also the subordinate's part. Why? Well, it's because, you know, as you, you nailed it, Steve, you create a context of where you don't want to lose. And that's ingrained in us as human beings. Loss aversion is our default. When you have a status when you've gotten something, the best opportunity is the acceptance letter or the acceptance uh, to a school or a new job because you just elevated your status. I was not in school. I didn't have a job or I had a lower level job, you know, lower level title, pay grade, whatever. And then you get this acceptance letter or offer. And all of a sudden that's the moment when it's like, yeah, okay. Now you have a new status. You leveled up, so to speak, right? In terms of the status seeking game. Then it's very interesting the culture environment you get into and your behaviors in that new status role, because a lot of people then, you know, create an environment where they don't want to lose that status. So they're playing not to lose. Only in really special circumstances do you get to that new status um, role in, in an environment where you can play to win. And play to win is about exploring, taking risks. Hey, yeah, we're going to, you know, innovation. If you're in a company and it's like innovation is key to us. Well, you're going to lose a lot of money going down dead ends to innovate. And it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. And if that is truly what that company is about, they understand the calculus of their budget is in a spend that's going to amount to no immediate return on that investment. So if you are in a company that says, oh man, innovation is key, but then they're like, well, don't spend too much because we only have so much budget. And oh my gosh, if you, if you spend that budget, whoa, 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 whoa. And oh, are you sure we need to buy this thing? Are you sure we need to invest in this? Are we sure you need to do this? And when you have that surveillance culture with excessive oversight, you're basically implicitly told, like, actually we say it's one thing. And the reality is it's another thing. We say it's we're about winning, but actually we're about not losing. And what you find is the um, teams or the cultures that are about more not losing than winning tend to be weaker environments. And what happens in the wild, right? When a strong animal sees a weak animal, that's when you pile it on more and go for the kill, right? So what happens too is you become weak in those I'm here not to lose context or um, frame of mind. And then all your efforts moving forward don't have the same degree of potency as a stronger you know, environment, a stronger animal, stronger athlete, stronger leader who says, yeah, you know what? We're going to take real risks that will result in real loss, loss of dollars, loss of labor hours, loss of a race, but the goal, the purpose is we know that taking these risks more so than ever, as long as they're calculated and intelligent risks, will eventually result in bigger wins down the road because it will compound the safety and exploration. And you know what? That's the great thing. When you lose and you risk and you fail, you just learned one new way not to do something. <laughs> So by learning more ways not to do it, you get closer to learning how to do it successfully. And we forget that because now we have this culture 
you know, in our world and especially in distance running as the, the, um, the pie, so to speak, of resources stays the same or gets smaller and the population stays the same and or increases that is competing for that pie of saying, well, we're just going to train ad nauseum for months out of the year and then only show up to this big, perfect setting race, uh, you know, to hit this mark because, you know, that's going to keep our contract. That's going to keep us employed. That's going to, um, you know, keep my status rather than saying, Hey, yeah, you know what? I'm okay with racing, you know, over and over and over again, or racing in different contexts that might not be my strong suit, you know, like say the 800 meter runner running a 15 or an open four, because I know this risk taking here is going to set me up for stronger risk taking and stronger confidence in risk taking down the road. And we have to, you know, again, remember it, if the scenario is, is right, like, you know, I think it was Bill Walsh or Bill Vilicek, one of the two, I forget who at the moment, they talked about setting up expectations about fourth, going for it on fourth down. You know, you don't want to go for it on fourth down early in the game when the, the score is tied, unless you're actually trying to send a message to that team about, hey, we're actually, we're playing to win. So if it's fourth and one or fourth and two, and you see a coach early in the game, go for it. That's actually a really strong signal. And where like the coach would be like, oh, that team is empowered with a mindset of we're going, we're playing to win, not, um, you know, playing not to lose. And what happens is in that scenario, where early on when it may not count if you go for, you know, go for it on fourth and three or fourth and two or fourth and one, um, maybe, yeah, they turn it over. But you're setting in a tone and expectation as a coach from this football analogy that, hey, we're prepared to go for it. We are going to go for it. And I trust you guys to take the risk to go for it because we know if we punt on fourth, what's going to happen. But if we go for it, we don't know what's going to happen. But there is a chance more so than punting that it might work out in our favor and retain the ball and moving forward versus giving the ball up. Yeah, it's really that. It's like it's setting that standard. And I think, you know, you talked in, in there a little bit about companies. And I think the same holds true for coaches is that we're really good at slogans, but not so good at the behaviors, you know. So we all we all know like, oh, take risks, take chances like, you know, failure is a learning opportunity innovate all that fall stuff. fall forward yes yeah. or fail yeah. forward <laughs> it, it's plastered everywhere right so we all know it has value right that isn't the problem but the problem is do your behaviors match you know those slogans right do your behaviors send the message that you want or that your slogans are sending right so you can sit there and say you know fail forward, like it's okay. But if then you rail on someone for failing, then what are they going to listen to the slogan or the behavior? They're going to listen to the behavior. And that's why I think as coaches, it's so important um, to be intentional on our behavior, especially around competitions, right? Because I call, you know, after before after you know bad or good races are like these sensitive points right we know from neuroscience and all the cognitive psych and all this stuff that um when emotion is high right memories almost get like latched on and stored you know easier to higher to a higher degree mm-hmm. in when is emotion high well right around racing you know right after a a good or bad race, right? So what you do in those moments also has a propensity in that individual, that athlete's head to be stored and remembered much more so than, you know, what you said at practice, we'll say, or what you said in random team meeting number 35 of the, of the season, right? Mm -hmm. It's in those sensitive moments. And we're harping on this because I think it's incredibly important is, 
be very intentional on there because that is what you say, what you do in those moments are going to set these expectations much more than your slogans, much more so than your team rule rules in a document or your, you know, your values that are written in a document. It's those behaviors where athletes will learn, you know, should I do this or not? In much the same way that your kids, if you have kids, learn from your behaviors, you know, when you're a parent, right? When they're testing the boundaries of, oh, can I get away with this? Oh, can what's mom or dad's reaction going to be to the to A, B, or C, right? They learn from seeing your behaviors um, in these situations. Athletes do the same way. So be intentional about it. Be aware of it. And if you do that, then you're going to be in a much better place to set these appropriate expectations. This is appropriate risk-taking and uh, this secure environment where athletes uh, feel like they can explore what it is like to reach their potential. And that's, you know, directly uh, intertwined with status. Like I keep going back to status because we're status-seeking creatures. We're social, um, you know, creatures as humans. And so all the time, we engage in games and exchange of status, you know, transactions with money and goods. Races are status um, opportunities. You can elevate your status through a race, placing time, or potentially you can, uh, you know, retard your status and move back um, with the outcome. And that's why it's really important as the coach is to, um, create that, foster that environment of safety and also acceptance, but healthy expectation for that status. I mean, think about all the silly status things that we do. Like we have all these garments that are meant to clothe and protect us in some degree from the weather and the elements. Yet we throw a logo on it. And depending on the status of that logo, that garment is now carries with this this emotional weight. It's a very interesting psychological phenomena that is the human condition. But every race is a status event in some way, shape, or form. And with that regard, you have to be sensitive to the status environment that you're in. I know for me, when I was racing and competing uh, as a young adult, there was a period of time where it was all brand new and I didn't have any expectation in high school. And it was a lot of fun because it was just see what you can do. You know, it, it's all fun and games. Like it's exciting. And then it started to change about when I got to college. Why? Because I had a history of race results. I had expectations. I said, okay, I was a young high school boy. Now I'm a college man. So I should be running faster, you know, right off the bat than I was. And I brought to it a lot of uh, anxiety and fear because I now had in my mind a threshold or a baseline that I could not, um, you know, slide uh, backwards um, from. What ended up happening? I slid backwards from it, right? I got hurt. You know, I ran a little bit slower in my first couple of years. Like I was training more. I was training at a higher level. I was, you know, really mo- self-motivated. Like I took on extra work as necessary. I said, okay, I'm going to do morning runs. I'm going to do weight lifts. I'm going to do all this stuff, right? Because the motivation was there um, to elevate my status. But the way I was interpreting my environment made it so I was like, you know, uh, really floundering and also uh, quote unquote a head case, so to speak, as we often say, because I wasn't able to put it together on race day. And you hear that a lot of times and it's a throwaway as a coach. Oh, they're a head case. They can't put it together on race day. No, it's just as much your um, issue as a coach as is the athlete because you have to figure out, okay, why are they doing the activity and what's holding them back and what's their perception of their status? Because, you know, in high important, high performance environments as Steve and I both know, you can have that explorer's mindset and, you know, that see what you can do mindset, but also too, you can have that. I better not lose my spot mindset because guess what? There's a thousand applicants or a thousand, um, you know, athletes or coaches ready to take my spot. And it's been very clearly communicated to me that I'm not special as an individual. I'm just 
you know, in this role and I'm easily replaceable because there's a lot of people who want to be in my spot, whether it's a sponsored athlete and a quote unquote elite coach, uh, you know, you know, at a, um, power five institution, you know, or on contract, whatever, right. It doesn't matter. Um, and when you get to that behavior then starts to change for people in those types of environments, it becomes a lot more fear-based, paranoia-based um, versus less like expansion and um, exploratory-based. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I hope listeners are picking up on are, are a couple themes on here, and maybe this summarizes it up, but it's this, it's this, are you in a constricted world or are you exploring right are you motivated finding your space based on fear or based on you know pursuit of goals or whatever have you are you seeing things as a threat or are you seeing it as a challenge are you playing prevent or are you playing this explore trying to you know see your potential etc etc and these these occur on this continuum, right? It's not, oh, you're either this or you're that. You're shades of gray in between it. And what we're trying to do as coaches is to nudge ourselves away or towards some of these, what I'll call more positive um, mindsets or ways to, uh, to think about performance. And the way we have these nudges is our behaviors, like set the stage for you know giving athletes the security to risk the security to explore their benefit or their performance all all that good stuff and the other component that i'd say is really important which we circled around on this conversation a lot is knowing the individual in front of you and where their proclivities lie right where their strengths and their weakness lies are they very high strung or not. It's not that either is a good or bad thing. It just is, right? Being high strung can be very beneficial to getting work in, right? It makes you, it tends to put you in one of these types that, okay, I'm going to get work in. I'm never going to miss a day, et cetera, et cetera. But then when it comes to performing, it can push you too high in this like arousal anxiety side. So it's not that it's bad or good. It's just you need to know where your individual athletes lie on these things, right? So that you know, okay, where am I trying to nudge them? Where am I trying to, you know, develop maybe this, uh, these different performance mindsets? Because people are going to have different motivators. They're going to have different backgrounds. They're going to have different, you know, um, things that are I'd call pain points, right? Some are going to be very sensitive to to failure. Some are going to be sensitive to failure in the way that they're judged by their peers, right? And just taking the time to get to know your athletes, to understand where they're coming from, to understand the lens that they see the world through is going to go a long way for you to determine what you need to do as a coach. It's, I think, yeah, a way to, you know, we've been using a lot of sport analogies here. Um, it's offense and defense, right? It's an offensive and defensive-minded um, approach. Now, it's not binary. You don't want to be all offense and play no defense. And you don't want to be all defense and play no offense. Like As Steve said, it's kind of a balance. And I go back to kind of Michael Jordan um, because if we look at Michael Jordan, you know, you have the – uh, that Chicago Bulls documentary that aired last year that everyone watched. But what a lot of people also forget about uh, Jordan was he was also defensive player of the year. A lot more um, often in his career before he became offensive player in a year. And he toggled between two extremes, right? He was defensive player and offensive player or you know scoring leader and defensive player until he finally found the middle, right? Where he didn't necessarily need to be the scoring leader. He didn't necessarily need to be the defensive leader, not the sole guy taking it all on his back. And he started to allow other players to demonstrate capacity and work within that context. Then he became the greatest player because it wasn't necessarily about 
the individual accolades that he had amassed early on. It became about the collective unity of the team championships. But everyone had a role in that elevation of the Michael Jordan mystique. Phil Jackson had a role. You know, Dennis Rodman had a role. Bill Wellington had a role. You know, Joe Klein had a role. Like these role players, everyone had a role in that. The media just ran with the, you know, Michael Jordan persona and phenomena because he was the most forward-facing individual on that um, Chicago Bulls team. But if Jordan was so special, then when he was with the Washington Wizards, right, in his, that, uh, re- that return period, they would have won championship after championship, but it didn't happen. Right. And that's not to take away from the legacy or the mystique that is the, the Michael Jordan, um, you know, brand. It's really to come back and say, this is how we learn as people. We, we, we toggle between the two extremes. We go from one side where it's super, you know, positive and we have a lot of success. And then we go, then something happens. We toggle to the other side where we have a lot of failure, uh, anxiety and, you know, um, difficulty and have to endure and digest that. It's only between after we toggle between the two extremes do we find that mean ground, and that's really what Steve and I are talking about. And what my experience and it sounds like your experience has been as well, Steve, with sports psychology is, it's not always predictable and the same like training. It's you have to take it as it comes, but as a coach, figuring out how to digest as best you can from where you sit, as best you can with the experience you have, as best you can with the, you know, counsel that you have and mentors you have available to call on to create solutions in your environment with the athletes you work with. And this is why Steve and I do the podcast, the scholar program, you know, emails, phone calls with coaches, direct messages on Twitter. It's because, you know, again, we're not trying to solve everyone's problems. What we're saying is here's our experience. Here's what we've been through. We've been at it through, you know, in our young coaching career, every level, very extreme environments. Like I didn't know how to deal with like coaching high performance athletes when I first started. Steve didn't know when he went to the Oregon Project how to deal with that environment that was, you know, Alberto Salazar, Nike, all this, like we didn't know, but we used what we had available to us, our friends, our past experience, learning, you know, and also just our own emotional IQ to deal with it as best we could. From where we sit now today with everything that we know, will we go back in time and deal with it different? Of course. But the key is that's part of the growth equation, you know, that Steve and Brad like to put out there is part of that growth equation is the setbacks and the failures and the disappointments, but then learning from them so that when future familiar situations arise that you go, ah, we've been here before. I've experienced this before. I handled it like this and that didn't go so well. (laughs) I'm probably now going to handle it a different way and see how well that goes. And it might go better, might go worse. Remember every time you fail, you just learn one more way not to do something. Thomas Edison creating the light bulb, right? He, he figured out 10,000 ways not to create the light bulb. And eventually you run out of ways not to create the light bulb and you create the light bulb. Same situation <laughs> here. You figure out a whole lot of ways not to race, a whole lot of ways not to coach, a whole lot of ways not to, you know, uh, program workouts. And eventually it becomes very simple and clear about the more opportune way and successful way to do it. You know, the only thing I could add there is just make sure that the light bulb example doesn't become a slogan and it is actually how you behave <laughs> and how, you know, reflects what you're doing and, and holds true because that story is great, but I feel like so many times it becomes a slogan. So our, our, takeaway message is to live it like behave it you're not always going to be perfect and that's fine but like own it and then try and do it a little bit better next time that's what we're about so yes behavior is key i you know real quick final closing tangent this is the thing you're going to not behave and i've i still not behave well with the people i hold 
you, the people you hold most dear in the moment or the people you're really trying to help in the moment, whether it's an athlete, a spouse, a friend, you might, and I have done this a lot, be overwhelmed, have a lot on your plate. You know, your to-do list that day with deadlines is through the roof and you don't feel like you can manage and you respond uh, to a request, you know, or to an expectation or to someone's remark in an offhand way that is might not be, um, you know, in good nature or in character. That's simple how to amend that. Go back later once you've collected yourself later that day, a, a day or two, you know, later and apologize and just say, hey, look, I'm sorry. I messed up or I wasn't feeling great. You know, it, it will go a long way to not only repair the transgression or friction of the exchange, but also to to create more trust and to create better alignment with your slogans, your values, your mission statement, and your behavior. Because people, again, we're always looking for consistency. Why do you think everyone lives in Southern California? Really consistent environment. It's always 70 and sunny. <laughs> like, <laughs> So we gravitate towards that, but we also gravitate towards consistency and behavior. So it's not to say you got to be perfect and never have bad days or never fail or never you know, have a short fuse emotionally if you are aware enough and mature enough to understand part of good behavior is also calling out when you've personally or not haven't acted within that behavior expectation spectrum, asking for apology, admitting that failure. That goes a long, long way when a leader or someone in a leadership role can do that and have that acceptance be there from either the people that report to them or the people that that leader reports to. Love it. So with that, we hope you enjoyed another episode of the On Coaching Podcast. If you haven't, check out the Scholar Program. If you love the podcast, leave a review. If you got a question, reach out to us. We are here to help. So Thanks again for everybody who's listening. We really enjoy uh, coming to you guys, you know, on this podcast. So we hope you enjoy the information. And until next time, we will keep on coaching.